Well, good morning. I want to say thank you to the worship team. Um, the level of musicianship here is really amazing. And um, I appreciate being taught how to worship, um, taught how to think about worship as proclamation of the word, both in our, in our morning and especially in this really interesting, creative idea to walk through Isaiah 6 together in our evening worship. So I'm <clears throat> grateful to, to Jonathan and the team. Um, I got to spend a, a really fantastic month in um, mid-March to mid-April with a group of college students from Westmont College who um, are studying abroad in the Middle East for a semester. I got to be with them in Israel and Palestine for a month teaching a course on Jesus and the Gospels and learning uh, a tremendous amount from them. One of the things they did as a group uh, that I found really interesting, and I, I have to say it's a, a little bit more sophisticated than mail call, is um, they recorded their observations about their experiences and one another using this ancient um, and, and disciplined form of poetry known as haiku. Uh, and by the time I got there, they had a quite, quite a thick book of haikus um, written uh, to commemorate and uh, to poke at each other a little bit. And so I got, I got into that, and I thought I would try to raise the level of discourse here just a little bit by offering you a haiku reflecting on yesterday's mail call and, um, and, uh, and my colleague's uh, excellent response. So I, I would like to read it to you. So, gentle, quiet, Anne. Easy mark for mail call wags. Don't mess with Egypt. <laughs> it's on. It's on. That's right. That's right. All right. We could get rid of that now. Thank you so much. <clears throat> oh, <laughs> so I thought something was falling on me, but it's going up. That's good. Um, at dinner last night, uh, John Coker, who served with my former president um, and colleague at Princeton Seminary, Tom Gillespie, told me the story that it, in the pulpit at Burlingame, um, Tom regularly began his sermon with a prayer taken from 1 Thessalonians um, 1.5. You know, he had stopped that by the time I got there. I'm, I don't know why he did. You remember it too. Well, Tom is one of the great saints and uh, models for me as scholar and pastor and Christian leader. So let this be our opening prayer. Lord, let the good news come not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I was puzzling a little bit over what Paul might have meant by the word coming in power and in the Holy Spirit. Um, and I... I think that we get a couple hints, at least in the letter to the Galatians, um, where in, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul reminds them of their reception of the Spirit and uses that as a basis for arguing with them uh, about the character of the Christian life as one founded in faith and trust uh, rather than in what we do. But he speaks about the Spirit who works deeds of power, miracles among you. These early Christian communities are charismatic in the sense that they are um, experiencing in very vivid ways in their midst God's power, God's power to heal, God's power to 
transform hopeless situations into hope. God's power to allow former enemies to love one another, to reconcile. God's power to allow the persecuted to endure in hope and blessing those who persecute them. He also mentions in chapter 4 that it is the Spirit who, coming into our hearts, cries out within us, Abba, Father. The Spirit comes in power in convincing us, allowing us to call out to God in faith and in hope. We saw yesterday as well um, that Paul's message, a message from God, a message validated by God, a message whose response is itself empowered by God, is a message that is embodied in the messengers, in Paul and in his co-workers. You became imitators, he says, of us and of the Lord. And in the section we're looking at today, in this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Paul unfolds more by way of reminder just what sort of embodiment is required by the good news from God. What sort of messengers, what sort of life corresponds to this amazing news that God has acted in Jesus Christ to bring reconciliation with God's enemies, to bring God's kingdom, to bring wholeness and salvation, to bring judgment and to bring ultimately peace to the whole cosmos. What kind of life is a life in keeping with that message. And so Paul here, not so much defending himself, I think, but reminding them, as he is wont to do, what sort of life they need to live by referring to his own life. Paul reminds them of their example, of the example of Paul and his co-workers as a way of encouraging the Thessalonians not only to take seriously the message, but to seek its embodiment in their lives as well. Let me go ahead and read the 12 verses that we'll look at then a little bit more closely together. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition for our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak, not to please human beings, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children. 
urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you can locate uh, the handout that was part of your packet, there are a couple of quotations on the back I'd like to read for you, and they're long enough that you might want to follow along with them as well. Um, Paul's language here has often been understood as a kind of apology, a self-defense. And it is possible that after Paul left town so quickly, there were people who criticized him and his message. Um, Perhaps those troubling the church were also pointing to the sort of sketchy profile of their founder, someone who didn't have the courage to defend himself before the magistrates, but snuck out of town, Um, someone who had been publicly beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi, clearly a character that the Thessalonians ought to have been aware, have taken uh, care of. And, um, and that's possible, that Paul is defending himself. But um, Abraham Malherby has uh, done several decades of research, as I've said, into the tradition of moral exhortation as it comes down to us in speeches and in letters. And it's apparent that Paul is drawing on um, common topics of speech used by the popular philosophers. So. It may not be that Paul is primarily defending himself against accusations as reminding his listeners of his conduct in order to continue to provide an example for their imitation. It's as if someone shows us how to do something and then explains what they've just shown us how to do. And then perhaps several weeks later writes a letter or an email saying, remember what I showed you how to do. This is what that was all about. Um, there's a a fairly long passage from a speech of Dio Chrysostom, uh, an orator active at the end, toward the end of the first century. And um, it's striking for the number of terms um, that overlap with terms Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. So on the back of the handout, there's two paragraphs there. Um, And you can see in transliteration some of the similar words. But listen to what Dio says. To find a man who in plain terms and without guile speaks his mind with frankness and neither for the sake of reputation nor for gain but out of goodwill and concern for his fellow men stands ready if need be to submit to ridicule and to the disorder and uproar of the mob. To find such a man as that is not easy but rather the good fortune of a very lucky city. So great is the dearth of noble, independent souls, and such the abundance of toadies, mountebanks, and sophists. In my own case, for instance, I feel that I have chosen that role not of my own volition, but by the will of some deity. For when divine providence is at work for men, the gods provide not only good counselors who need no urging, but also words that are appropriate and profitable to the listener. This is the introduction to a speech to the city of Tarsus. Dio is going to give them advice in dealing with a crisis that has beset the city. He presents himself at the beginning of the speech as one who ought to be listened to, who is worthy of attention, precisely because he has pure motives. And he contrasts himself with others, especially those orators out there 
who don't follow the way of philosophy, but who instead are concerned only for their reputation. So Paul is drawing on conventional language as he presents himself as a trustworthy example for the Thessalonians to follow. I don't think it's uh, necessarily an either-or. Um, Paul is being criticized or Paul is simply providing himself as an example. But I think the crucial insight that Mel Herbie has for us is that what Paul is doing is a strategy not to burnish his own reputation, but to benefit the Thessalonians. To some of my students, Paul seems like uh, an insufferable egotist. For Paul, especially given the conventions of his day, um, he's a wise pastor whose life is itself primary evidence for the truthfulness of his message. And the character of his life is a primary piece of evidence for um, the benefit to be had by following his way of discipleship to Christ. But as I mentioned yesterday, uh, Professor Malherby's work is valuable not simply for pointing out these parallels, but for helping to highlight what's distinctive about Paul's discourse. Because Dio Chrysostom would not have confused Paul with one of his fellow philosophers. Paul, in fact, is um, taking something from the culture and tweaking it and crafting it and using it for his own purposes, which are the pastoral formation of this Christian community. So notice how often in this short passage, Paul refers to God. Chrysostom claimed to have perhaps been sent by the will of some deity, but Paul speaks specifically about the God and Father of Jesus Christ. It is God's message. Notice how several times he specifies that it is the good news of God, the good news from God, the gospel from God. It's a message which God has entrusted to Paul. It's a trust. Paul is a steward, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, and a steward is required to be found faithful to the one who appointed him. God's appointing of Paul, in fact, was not haphazard, but God has tested and approved Paul. And God is the one who continues to test the heart of his emissary. So Paul understands his interactions with the Thessalonians to be not just in the public realm in terms of the human public, but even more to be coram deo, to be before the face of God, God who knows the heart, God who knows Paul's heart even better than Paul himself. Again, in that parallel from 1 Corinthians, he says, I don't even dare to judge myself because God will reveal all motives at the end. And yet, I strive to be faithful before God. There's a humility and a confidence that comes with knowing that he is God's appointed messenger. And uh, we were talking a little bit yesterday in the Q&A period of, of the the way in which the gospel has always been an offense in some way or another. And part of the trick is figuring out how to get the offense in the right place. Um, but the confidence to proclaim a message that is out of keeping with our time, with our culture, with the spirit of our age, can only come, Paul would argue, from the fact that it's not our message. We've been entrusted with something whose origin is with God, and frankly, whose power is not in our hands either, but whose power is God's. 
In Romans, Paul famously says, the gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who trusts. The gospel itself is a message that evokes faith. And so Paul celebrates the fact that the word came to Thessalonica, not just verbally, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction, the gift and activity of God. So Paul is one who continues to appeal to God as witness. Notice how often, I find it repetitive actually reading it in English, you know, as you know, as you know. Over and over again, he summons the Thessalonians themselves to be witnesses. Everything Paul is saying was out there in public view. Paul was not one person in private and one person when he was doing ministry. And... Um, he alludes to the fact that much of his ministry happened while he was working, laboring as a craftsman, probably in his workshop, teaching fellow workers, talking with customers who came in, speaking with people who had time to stop by. Um, Paul's life is lived in public in a way that most of us um, won't experience with our much more private existence. And so I, I think about that um, it's one thing for me to show up for class a few hours a week and be on for my students, but what if they saw me in my own home uh, cleaning bathrooms with my kids or um, trying to get everybody rounded up in time to get to an appointment to church on Sunday morning? Um, would I be able to have the same confidence that there's a coherence between my public persona and the person that I am in private? So notice the things here that Paul draws attention to. Um, again, there are parallels in Chrysostom, but these are, these are parallels not because Paul has plagiarized someone else's speech, but because these are the kinds of motives that might be behind a good appearance. So he uses antithesis here to contrast the wrong motives for conduct and the right motives. First of all, he speaks about his courage. Courage... Um, here, the word is um, one that speaks of um, freedom of speech or frankness of speech, parousia. Uh, you may have run across in commentaries. Uh, it's a word that, that often gets transliterated into English because it's a bit hard to, to bring over simply. Um, in the civic realm, it refers to the fact that someone has standing to speak in the assembly. You're a citizen, you're allowed to speak. If I go visit the House of Representatives, they're not going to let me talk. They're not going to care what I have to say. I don't have standing. But parousia is having that freedom of speech. But then it becomes extended to mean a kind of boldness to speak one's mind. And um, it doesn't lose that public side. So Paul is talking here about a kind of frank speech, a free speech that is fearless um, because it is speech on behalf of God. So he talks about this courageous speech that he had uh, with which he announced the good news of God in spite of a great contest. Um, NRSV here has great opposition, but contest can be all kinds of hardships, and I think there's no reason to, to narrow it down. Certainly there was some public opposition, but Paul is also having to support himself, as he says, working night and day so as not to be a burden to his converts. Um, 
when I was with the Westmont program, I had the, the privilege of not being the program director. Um, one of my best friends, Bruce Fisk, uh, professor of New Testament, was leading the program. And um, I've, I've rarely seen Bruce so tired because not only was he teaching a course and managing travel and taking care of contacts and managing students' sickness, and uh, he also um, was not sleeping very much <laughs> because night and day he was taking care of the program. Um, Paul is suffering not simply because of opponents, but by the very nature of the work. He talks about labor and toil. And it's a labor and toil that the Thessalonians themselves have entered into as he gave thanks for their labor prompted by faith, their work that stems from love. So Paul speaks about frankness of speech. And um, the opposite of that in verse 3 is a, a speech that seeks to flatter or to trick or to manipulate people. Our appeal, he says, does not spring from deceit or impure motives or from trickery. We're not trying to take you in by our smooth talk. We're not simply telling you what you want to hear. We're not coming up with crafty stories to pull you in to some dark design. In fact, he says, again, as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with a message, we're not free to change the message. It's something that we are delivering before one who is able to test our hearts. And so God can be a witness in verse 5. We didn't flatter. We didn't seek to uh, find a cover for our greed. Um, nor did we seek, verse 6, praise from mortals, whether from you or for, uh, from others. Um, this idea of seeking a reputation, seeking praise, most of us, I would venture, are not in ministry in order to make a lot of money. Um, so perhaps the not a pretext for greed <laughs> doesn't hit home. But I'll tell you, the one that hits home for me is this, not seeking praise from human beings, not seeking to burnish our own reputation. Um, again, with a life lived in public in the ancient world, reputation, glory, honor was one of the highest goods in that society. <clears throat> um, in fact, in a way that's even somewhat different from our culture, one's public honor was perhaps the most prized possession, and it was constantly vulnerable to being worn away by others. One's honor could be diminished by someone else winning honor. It's a zero-sum game. One's honor could be diminished by um, being insulted or by being unsuccessful in one's venture. And um, Chrysostom, the same orator in the same oration a little bit later, talks about the difficulty cities, Greek cities like Tarsus had, finding good counselors who weren't just looking for all of the rewards that went with a public position. In a city like Tarsus, the wealthy class would have rotated um, civic duties. Um, often one would have to spend one's own money in order to provide um, improvements to the city or host games or um, put up 
statues to honor the emperor or a prominent citizen, but one would do these public things because you could put your name on it. Um, we don't have any parallel like that in our church fundraisers, I know, right? Um, all right one church that uh, I attended, the communion wear had a little name plaque on it. That might have been going a little bit too far, but... Um, <laughs> given for you. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks, John. You know, and, I, and I raise these things not because it's clear that it's a bad thing to donate a building to have one's name on it or to, to sacrificially give to a church and to, to have a remembrance there. It's, it's not either or, but boy, when it gets to the heart, um, this, is the th this is the thing that um, makes me most uncomfortable because I know that this is, a, this is a, one of those idols talking yesterday uh, with a brother, but what are, what are the idols from which we need to turn? And, um, and that's a terrific question for contextual pastoral theology. If, if I'm preaching Christ, what are the idols that I and my congregation need to turn from? But um, Paul names one of mine here, uh, reputation. That's an academic career is built on reputation. Oftentimes, that's the currency, one of the few things that uh, the church can offer or perhaps offer as a temptation. Um, so how do we wrestle with that? Um, God knows our hearts. God tests our hearts. That's both a warning, but I think also a comfort. There's a, a passage in, in 1 John chapter 3. It's a little bit difficult to, to translate, and there's some interesting manuscript variants, which just means that it's been difficult to understand from the very beginning. But John writes about if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God in prayer. But then he says, but if our hearts do condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Um, it's not ultimately up to us. And I, I think being led last night through a time of confession in our worship time, uh, and then being led by Anne to think about ways in which God has been the one to supply hope and faith and people along the way to encourage us. I, th I think it encourages us to, to be open with God, to be frank before God in lament over our desire for pride, uh, our pride, our desire for fame, to confess it freely, uh, to ask for God's help, and then just to get on with proclaiming the word. Um, and not, C.S. Lewis has, a, has a, a great description of the humble person as one who isn't thinking about herself or himself. Um, but taken up with God. Um, so this is a conventional um, denial. I'm not seeking your praise, but it's also a helpful encouragement to the Thessalonians and to us that real praise comes from God. In verse 7, he says, we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's not a bad translation. Um, the New English Bible gets a little bit more of the metaphor in Greek. He says, as Christ's own envoys, we might have made our weight felt. We weren't heavy on you, or we weren't heavy-handed with you. A little bit later, he's going to say, we worked so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. But here he's talking about the way authority can be used in a, with a soft, gloved hand, 
or with an iron fist. And he says, we, we might have made demands. We might have been harsh as apostles of Christ. Um, there are other letters in which Paul does talk about his authority for tearing down and building up. Um, and he threatens the Corinthians with, gives them a choice as a veiled threat. Shall I come to you with a rod <laughs> or shall I come to you in gentleness? But Paul here says, we chose, even though we had the right to be forceful, we chose a different tack with you. Um, the last quotation on the handout that I offered, I, I, lo I love this. This is from a work by Plutarch who speaks about moral exhortation um, as needing to be gentle for the sake of the one being exhorted. And he gives this example. He says, when children fall down, the nurses don't rush up to berate them, but they take them up, wash them, straighten their clothes, and after all this is done, they rebuke and punish them. <laughs> I wish I could say as a parent, I've always acted that way. <laughs> uh, I, the told you so thing is really tempting. Um, but... Paul's tack here is not to be harsh. Um, apparently, he didn't need to because elsewhere he can be adaptable in his approach. Um, moral philosophers love to use the example of the surgeon or the doctor as well. Some wounds need to be uh, treated with oil and softeners. Others need to be cauterized with a hot iron. And uh, the wise physician knows which method to provide to which situation. Paul here is highlighting his gentleness, and he uses a series of images that come from the family world. We talked yesterday about how um, converts were dislocated from their family networks, from their extended social networks. Um, Joseph and Asenath has uh, Asenath talking of herself as an orphan, as one who has fled to God. Um, that was uh, instantiated in very vividly for us last night in, in Anne's story of Layla. Um, we continue to encounter in our communities people who have been orphaned because they have found God to be Father. And um, so Paul uses these images. Um, text criticism is usually not uh, an exciting discipline, but in verse 7, there's, this is sort of the firestorm in 1 Thessalonians as far as which text do we read. And if you have the NRSV, um, you'll see that there's a footnote. We were gentle among you. Note D in my text says, other ancient authorities read infants. We were infants among you. So what's going on here? Um, really simply stated, it's the presence or absence of one letter, new. Uh, is it that we were napioi, infants, or we were apioi, gentle? And compounding the problem, the previous word ends in new. So you could imagine a mistake being made really easily. Either they doubled an N or they dropped a double N and made it a single N. Um, and so the textual evidence is pretty well divided. The easier reading is... Um, often thought to be the secondary one, or to put it slightly differently, whichever reading better explains the origin of the other is more likely to be original. Um, but this is, this is a tough one because <clears throat> any judgment about what reading is easier has to make assumptions about what field of discourse Paul is drawing on, what field of life is he drawing on. So on the one hand, he might be um, sort of giving us metaphorical whiplash here. 
because in one breath they are infants, in the next they are the nursing mothers of the infants. We were like infants among you. We were infants among you. Sorry, the metaphor, not a simile. Like a nurse, here obviously a wet nurse, tenderly caring, not for someone else's children, but for her own children. So are they infants and nurses? Um, my former colleague at Princeton, Beverly Gaventa, has written um, really important article on this, Apostles as infant, as Babes and Nurses. Um, she has a collection of essays called Our Mother St. Paul that includes um, some, of, some of her important work on that theme. And so clearly in her commentary and in her work, she opts for infants. And it is a pretty striking metaphor. The apostles who could have demanded instead offered themselves up as, and what should we think of, infants? Helpless, perhaps? Innocent? Guileless? Pick, pick something. Malherbie and others, however, have noticed that apios, gentle, um, is a descriptor that is regularly used by the moral philosophers and teachers, a gentleness in exhortation. And um, it looks like the translators of the NRSV opted for that as slightly more likely. Easier, perhaps, because it fits, but perhaps also to be read because it fits. Um, if we were patristic interpreters, uh, we would just interpret both texts. I love the fact that when you, you read a patristic commentator, they often um, will say, well, one text reads this, here's what this means, and another text has this, and this is what this means. Um, I've been reading with students some of the patristic commentaries on Isaiah, and um, commentators like Chrysostom and Theodoret know that they're reading a translation and so they're interested not only in how the 70, the Septuagint translates it, but they know they've got these other translations attributed to Aquila and Symmachus and Theodosian. And sometimes they try to figure out which one is better, but often they just find a good lesson from each one. Uh, in fact, Jerome, who um, famously gets into a big argument over trying to make a fresh translation from the Hebrew into Latin, um, in sections of his Isaiah commentary actually has parallel comments. He comments on the Greek translation and then he comments on his own Latin translation from the Hebrew. And again, it's not either or, it's both. So perhaps we should do that at least homiletically. Uh, apostles as infants and apostles as gentle nurses. This um, nurse caring for children, it's a, a common um, occupation for slaves um, to put the slaves in charge of your children. Today we don't enslave them, but we have nannies and au pairs who often do the same thing. Um, but this is a nurse caring for her own children. Paul ratchets up the pathos and the um, compassion of the metaphor. In verse 8, he says, we, our affection was so deep, or we cared for you so deeply, that we determined... And this refers to a freely made choice. We were pleased. Um, God's good pleasure is the, the translation that um, we have of, of, of the noun form of this in, in, um, in Luke's gospel or elsewhere, for example. Um, we chose to share with you not just the message, but, Paul says, our very selves, our own psuchas, our own souls, our own lives because you had become beloved to us. 
There's a nice answer here to his conviction in chapter 1 that we know that you are beloved by God, that God has chosen you because of the way the word came among you. Paul says we have come to love you as well. Just as God loves you, so we love you. You became very dear to us, so we have shared our very own selves. In the section we'll look at later this morning, Paul speaks further about his longing for them now that they're separated. And he uses a a vivid metaphor. He says, we've become orphans because we've been separated from you. So perhaps the apostles as infants is not out of keeping with this jarring back and forth. Are they nurses, parents, or infants as well? Um, What Paul's getting at is the intensity of that relationship and its mutuality. You have become dear to us. We love you. I imagine that um, what will sustain, what does sustain um, you and pastors who pastor over the long term and teachers who give more than simply lectures is that deep down we love the people that God has placed in our lives. And um, again, that can be and should be an object of prayer. God, would you pour your love out in our hearts that we might love the people that you love, that we might be channels of your love. Um, Paul is both culturally appropriate in expressing emotion in letters, um, but also in doing so, drawing the Thessalonians into the very most intimate relations in his culture. These letters are how family members talk to one another, how dear friends talk to one another this kind of expression of longing and desire and love and passion. Um, They are family. And so again in verse 9, he calls them brothers and sisters as he reminds them of their labor and toil. Um, Here's a place where it's really clear that Paul is offering himself as an example. In the last chapter of the letter, he's going to turn to directly encourage them, counsel them, exhort them to work diligently with their own hands, um, not to be idle. But Paul himself has lived this way. And um, there's been uh, a number of interesting books trying to imagine what Paul's preaching looked like. It appears that very little of it was the sort of standing in the marketplace haranguing people um, that was often associated with philosophers. Um, Instead, Paul is working and um, in the context of a workshop, teaching, stitching leather and talking about the gospel, speaking to people who come in and out, working with the social networks then that he begins to tap into. Um, We use, of course, the term today, tent maker, for pastors who do their pastoral ministry in conjunction with making a living through a trade or some other job. Uh, It's got a good pedigree to it. Although, as Paul says, it's immensely challenging. We worked night and day. We labored and toiled. Uh, The New English Bible has, remember our toil and drudgery as night and day we worked for a living, rather than be a burden to you. Paul's writing this letter from Corinth where, similarly, he is working until some of the believers from Macedonia come with a gift that enables him to um, devote himself full-time to teaching and preaching, he actually ends up offending the Corinthians because he won't take money from them. 
That's what respectable teachers do. It's quite common. In fact, one of the, the big arguments between the philosophers and the, uh, the pseudo-philosophers, or at least the charge that someone is a pseudo-philosopher, is that somebody's in it for the money. And um, so it's a, a badge of honor for Paul, he says. He has no choice about preaching the gospel, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, but he is able to choose to offer it free of charge. And he does so not to exalt himself, although it does speak to the purity of his motives, but because Jesus Christ is one who, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. Christ gave himself for us. And so the shape of Paul's ministry takes that form of self-giving as well. Well, verse 10, he um, sums up what he has been saying, again, calling on them as witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God. Um, this notion of going person to person within the community, um, again, matches really well the encouragement we had our first night together to think of our flock as a group and also as individuals. Um, this notion of working both with the group and with the individuals finds, as now you've come to expect, a parallel in Dio Chrysostom. I really like Dio, actually. Um, he is a, a philosopher who was exiled because of his frank speech uh, to the emperor Trajan and um, likes to portray himself as a wandering Odysseus, um, but is really serious about wanting to provide a service to his listeners. But he speaks here about the true philosopher who um, seeks to lead people to virtue, as he says, partly by persuading and exhorting partly by abusing and insulting, and that's the path Paul chose not to use, by taking people aside privately one by one and also by admonishing them in groups. Paul, a wise pastor, is adapting methods that are tried and true in the wider culture, um, but again, they're oriented toward God because his urging and encouraging and pleading is not simply live a fulfilling life, be self-controlled, be wise with your money, be faithful to your friends. It's that, but it's more. It's lead a life worthy of God. Uh, we have parallels to this in other of Paul's letters. He can speak of a life worthy of the gospel. I think here it's, um, it's quite significant that it's God's own character, the God who sends the good news, the God who approves a messenger like Paul, but even more, the God whose own character is displayed in the character of God's Son. You want to know what God is like and what, therefore, true humanity in God's image is like, we look to Jesus Christ. And again, as Paul gives us very few details and specific about Jesus' life, it's clear that what's important about Jesus' human life is that it displays the self-giving character of God. And um, here, leading a life worthy of God, the Thessalonians are reminded 
and reoriented again to the story that makes their own life stories intelligible. This is the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This assembly of the Thessalonians <clears throat> in the middle of a free Greek city, a minority in a prosperous trading town, under pressure to conform to social norms, to honor the ancestral gods, to conduct themselves in public in ways befitting Greeks and Romans, are reminded that they've been called into, they've been made partakers in another kingdom, the kingdom of God. Paul uses citizenship language much more um, explicitly in Philippians, but the idea here is the same. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and so we conduct our lives together in keeping with the character of the king and the politics of that kingdom. Instead of seeking reputation from humans, God calls us into his glory to share his good reputation and to receive praise from God read an article recently by Robert Jensen, written all the way back in 1993, that talks about the challenge of teaching and preaching to a culture that has lost any sense of story, any sense of narrative that makes sense of the world, let alone individual lives. And um, he points to the kind of endless invention of self, the pressure to invent self through our purchasing habits. Uh, through our lifestyle choices, which often have an economic uh, side to them. And so they're endlessly promoted by people who want our money. Um, desire to invent ourselves by focusing on our identity, our uniqueness, protecting that identity from assault by others or dishonor. Um, we've lost an organizing story, Jensen says, and so therefore preaching, gospel preaching, has to reorient us to the story that is meaningful because it is God's story, the story that is true because it is God's story, the story that Scripture tells us about the God who calls us into His reign, into His glory. And therefore, the Thessalonians' conduct in public, their ability to imitate Paul, their desire to persevere in hope, all depends on the truthfulness of that story. God, the Father, the Creator, the one who sent His Son, is also the one who in love has reached out to us, has incorporated us into God's family, destines us for God's kingdom of justice and peace, and calls us now to persevere in hope, modeling in our life together the kind of life seen in the messengers of the gospel, a life that is in imitation of Christ, a self-giving for the sake of others in witness to the reconciling love of God. Paul's long thanksgiving comes to an end in chapter 3, and our next session this morning will take us all the way up to the beginning of chapter 4, where Paul turns from thanksgiving to exhortation and gets fairly practical and um, fairly intimate with his congregation in terms of here and now what that behavior needs to look like.
It looks by my watch that we have almost 10 minutes if um, it's a chance for talk back, push back, questions. I'm happy to take those. Please. Uh, great question. Um, so the question was, would, would Paul's letter carrier um, be the one perhaps to read the letter and be able to fill in uh, information? Would, would Timothy, for example, as an emissary, uh, be providing other information than we have in the letter? I, and I, I think it's a, an important insight, and it, it's right. Um, Paul, in fact, um, relied very heavily on his co-workers as emissaries. And like other ancients, um, and we had a quote from Seneca yesterday, the living voice is valued more highly than the letter. The letter is a substitute for personal presence, but so much better to have a living example. Even well into the, the beginning of the second century, we had that famous um, passage in Eusebius about Papias, who knew the apostles and who said, I much preferred the living voice. If I could find an, an associate of the apostles who could talk to me, I preferred that to the text. So, yeah, the texts are important, they're central to our life together, but for the earliest time especially, um, there was no substitute for the living voice. Um, and so, when Paul um, commends his letter carriers, in a way he's giving them the kind of introduction they need to be able to be uh, a representative for Paul, um, an authoritative presence. Um, when Paul sends Timothy to the Corinthians, I'm probably going to stumble trying to find the passage, um, he mentions that Timothy will remind them of his way of life. So Timothy is going to stay there as a teacher. Timothy will himself embody Paul's lifestyle. And um, Paul has also left people in the congregations, he believes. He, he tells the Philippians to look around for people who live according to the pattern you've seen in us. So that's, a, that's an important insight. Um, an ancient letter, um, is not, it doesn't have really helps for the reader, so you have to kind of know what you're reading in order to read it publicly. So it's quite likely that the emissary might have first read it. It could have been handed over to somebody else who, who looked it over and practiced it. Um, but it seems natural that um, if Phoebe is bringing the letter to the Roman congregations that she's going to have other things to tell them about Paul's situation. And um, so some have argued, and I think with some plausibility, that Phoebe's probably the first interpreter of Paul's letter to Rome. Um, the trouble we get into as, um, as moderns trying to make sense of the letters is that you can appeal, you can, you can make an over-appeal to how someone might read a letter or fill in the gaps. Um, so we're, we're at, a, at somewhat of a, of a disadvantage when it comes to um, that original audience. Other thoughts? Oh, yeah. Should we pass the mic around? That'd be great. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, Ray. Thanks. So I lead a ministry. Whoa. I lead a ministry with uh, university students and young adults, and I think a lot about how we uh, proclaim and study the Bible with our postmodern age in mind. And I found uh, James K. Smith and his book on Charles Taylor really helpful in helping us define a secular age as one in which 
beliefs are contested by those outside of the church, even for those we have inside the church that their beliefs are contested. Uh, so I'm hearing you speak about Paul's method, and I really see him as an exemplar of how we can live as servants of the gospel in an age in which beliefs are contested. Because I think there's a 2,000 years of Christendom between Paul and us, but we're on the far side of it. So can you speak on how was Paul's assumption that beliefs were contested by those inside the church even, how did that shape how he lived as a pastor and apostle? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in the section we're going to look at um, in, in an hour or so, Paul talks about writing and wanting to visit further in order to, to supply what's still lacking in their faith or to repair. He actually uses a word that's used for repairing nets, to, to make right. Um, which, and, and the letter, is, I mean, the Corinthian correspondence is even more clear that Paul's initial teaching can be misunderstood or even rejected. And so there's an ongoing formation through emissaries, through letters. Um, I, I think he has the advantage in speaking to the Thessalonians of just not assuming they know really anything. He's got to tell them who God is. And um, I, I think, as you pointed out, we're tempted on the far side of Christendom to assume that when we talk about God, that we mean we all mean the same thing. And not just inside or be insiders versus outsiders, but even in our own pews. Like we have to tell the story of God. We have to tell who Jesus is to ourselves and to our congregations rather than assume that that these words are meaningful things. Um, which is why, you know, I, there's there's certainly one can do theology in a way that seems overly abstract, but actually there's, there's nothing more important for Christian preaching than, than getting right who Jesus Christ is and who the God that we worship is, the God who is not hiding behind a mask somewhere, but who is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So practical theology, um, my colleague Ellen Cherry loved to say, there's no such thing as theology that's not practical. It's not theology if it's not practical. But practical theology is really in preaching and in pastoral counseling. And the kind of stuff that scholars do writing books on theology or writing Bible commentaries, that's preparatory, that's helpful. But um, theology is done in, in the interaction, in the moment. And um, I, James K. Smith's book on uh, how not to be secular, I've appreciated because Charles Taylor is a pretty big chunk to try to read. Um, but what's most, what was most revealing to me in that book is the way that Taylor, through Smith at least, um, shows that some of the very fundamental assumptions about the way the world is have shifted radically. And so Paul is writing to people who know that the gods and humans belong to one community. He can speak about Satan or about demons or about idols, and, and he just know, people know that their social world includes spiritual beings. Well, Taylor talks about how we live really in what he calls an imminent frame. That is, there's nothing beyond us. Um, how do you then talk about a God who comes to us, who's created us for something that's beyond what we can see and touch and feel? It's exciting to try to do that, um, but it's going to take a tremendous amount of creativity. And at the same time, this emphasis on lived example I mean, we're not called just to, to teach people a bunch of ideas. I, I know the way that I've learned Christianity has largely been by worshiping with the community, by having my affections formed by the songs we sing, by kneeling in prayer with a congregation to confess. 
So, um, you know, I think the, the worship that we are experiencing together is, is part of shaping us, just as the teaching time is, or just as the conversations are outside. Um, so that's a beginning of an answer, at least. I want to pick up right where you left Please. off. Please, yeah. Because I see and hear him saying, not only do we come wanting to share with you the gospel, but our very lives. Yeah. And that the best, I mean... I could reference 10 different sources here. Newbegin talks about how the gospel is really proclaimed in living it out in a community of faith, not just in teaching concepts. Yeah. Um, Mike Breen talks about it, that we go from information to imitation to innovation. But most of us go from information to innovation, and we never go to the imitation part. Mm -hmm. He speaks strongly about imitation, about living life together. Um, one of the, my cutting edges is missional communities. Okay. of this extended family kind of way of living as a church. And I think it's a total paradigm shift for the church. You made a comment mm -hmm. beginning saying, you know, I'm only with my students three times a week for an hour, two hours, maybe three hours at a time. And yet the gospel is meant to be lived. And I remember my days doing youth ministry. And one of the reasons I got out of it was because it was so time intensive. <laughs> it was just, you know, I was going on retreats. I was spending time with kids. I was going on yeah. campus and all that. I'm coming back to it as a 60-year-old pastor and saying that that was right. What I got sucked into as a pastor in the church was all these expectations that I would study, that I would read, mm -hmm. that I would do all these things that kept me out of contact with people. And that I just really believe that we're wrong. And that's why the church is failing. Mm -hmm. is because we're not living in community anymore. We're living this kind of divided, professional type of pastor and, and people that doesn't really put us in a life together with God. And that the best way to teach the gospel to people is in doing life together, actually spending lots of time together, being doing meals together. Um, the, the kind of missional community thing is that there's three dimensions of life, up, in, and out. Hmm. Up toward God, in toward each other, and out toward the world. And that we do the up thing pretty well. Hmm. Hmm. That's about it. You know, and that we really need to work on these other pieces. And I see Paul here saying, you know, when the most gratifying thing to me is when somebody says to me, thanks for preaching the gospel, not just with your words, mm. but with your life. Yeah. Just being there with them. And it's a privilege of a pastor to be that, you know, to, to be with the people and to be the example, but not to be the only one. But to really do discipleship is to then teach those people how to. And I see it in Paul here. And mm. thanks for pointing it out to us, but I, I think the challenge is that we've got to do a paradigm shift that churches become places of community and not just places of kind of teaching and institutions. Hmm. I'd Thank love you. to hear what Thank that you. brings up for you. Well, well said, and I actually don't want to take away from it by, by saying very much, um, except that we're going to get the opportunity this afternoon, I think, to hear about um, a pretty interesting experiment in church planting in the Tacoma area. Um, so listen for that at lunch. Um, I enjoyed hearing about that yesterday at dinner. Um, it does strike me, though, just in terms of connections. I, I mean, this is deeply countercultural. Um, I, I just compare the neighborhood I grew up in with the neighborhood I live in now. I don't see most of my neighbors outside their homes. The lawn service comes and mows, and um, you know we might wave on the way to work. But it, so what more striking thing than people who do life together? 
And I wonder if that's not a piece of, of what Anne was talking about last night, of the kind of difference that makes people sit up and say, What's, what is it with you guys? How come you have such deep and meaningful community? Look how those Christians love each other. Um, let me go ahead and, uh, and dismiss us at this point. We'll be back together at 11.30, but um, Jarrett, go ahead and give us instructions.